Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 28. Later Rome. Theatre finds a home. Last time, I looked at the way theatre in Rome moved from rustic celebrations into its first home at the Circus Maximus, and then on to a long period where theatre was mobile, using temporary stages to make comic presentations on festival days in various parts of the city. Temple steps and city spaces served the theatre well enough, and a tradition of homegrown theatre that retold foundation narratives developed alongside influence from Greek comedy and tragedy. This was all during the Roman Republican period, where no permanent theatre buildings were allowed, so the temporary structures were developed and these, in time, became very large and ornate wooden buildings. These buildings included space for seated audiences and became the basic structure for a Roman stage and auditorium. Plays, scenery and costume all became more sophisticated and developed in a particular Roman style under these constraints, and I closed the last episode with descriptions of the two temporary theatres that were built and then dismantled about 150 BCE. These theatres were particularly noted for their grandeur by our sources, but big changes were about to happen as the crumbling republic gave way to empire, and at last theatre got a permanent home, and what a home it was. But the context for the building of the first permanent theatre is not one of the decline of the Republic, but for the celebration of one of its most successful sons. It's not without reason that Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus acquired the Magnus honorific in his name. In his own lifetime, he was known as Pompey the Great. He had a good start in life, being born into the senatorial class, the son of a dynamic politician and soldier, Pompeius Strabo and he followed his father into politics and the army. From a young age, he showed a talent for military strategy and chose the right side of the wrangling for power that took place towards the end of the Republican period. I won't go into all the details of the civil war that raged between two generals, Lucius Sulla and Gaius Marius, but if you're interested in more detail on this, then Mike Duncan's book The Storm Before the Storm deals with this period and it's a really good read as it brings clarity to a complex political picture of the time. Pompey Strabo had sided with Marius, but after his father died, Pompey Jr. switched sides and joined Sulla, which was a move that involved some very shady actions on his part, and certainly would have brought his career to a swift end had Sulla not succeeded in ousting Marius in 83 BCE. Pompey commanded three legions in the fight to recover Rome from Marius, and impressed Sulla enough to be allowed to marry his daughter. It was on Sulla's orders that the Senate sent Pompey to recover Sicily and the African provinces from armies that continued with the Marian cause, which he did quickly in 82 and 81 BCE. He became known for his brutality towards the supporters of Marius that he captured, and while his soldiers called him great, his enemies knew him as Sulla's butcher. Never a shrinking violet, Pompey sent messages from Africa demanding that a triumph be granted to him. Sulla only approved the request when Pompey refused to disband his army and marched it to the gates of Rome. When Sulla abdicated, Pompey supported Marcus Lepidus in his bid for consulship in 78 BCE, but not for the revolution that he attempted once he was in office. With that rebellion crushed, again Pompey refused to disband his army and pressured the Senate to send him to Spain to dispatch the last of the Marian rebels. This proved not as simple as Africa and Sicily had been, and the drain on the Republic's resources was considerable, but eventually a settlement was reached with the province. 
Pompey now had personal influence over Spain, southern Gaul and northern Italy, and once again he marched an army into Italy. His excuse this time was to assist in the suppression of the slave revolt led by Spartacus in 70 BCE, but his real motive was to secure the consulship in that year. He struck a deal with the general who actually did fight and defeat Spartacus, Marcus Licinius Crassus, and they were both elected consuls. Pompey was then granted his second triumph. After his year as consul was up, he took something of a political hiatus, seemingly waiting for rivalries between various nobles in Rome to play out. At the same time, the threat from pirates operating in the Mediterranean was becoming more and more keenly felt in Rome, and in 67 BCE, Pompey was asked to lead an expedition to restore the order to the seas. Again, he had a quick success, and was still stationed in the east working on resettling pirates as farmers, when the Senate voted him full power to settle an ongoing problem with Mithridates, king of Pontus, in Asia Minor, who had been troubling the Roman borders for some time. He was also given the authority to reorganise the running of the eastern provinces. He saw off Mithridates with his now expected efficiency and set about stabilising the eastern provinces. With hindsight, this was probably his greatest achievement and shows that he was an expert political operator with a good understanding of the geographical and political considerations that needed to be balanced. His organisation of this vast area was the basis for the frontier system that survived the 500 years of empire with little change. So when he returned to Italy in December 62 BCE, he was an enormously popular figure who, in the public imagination, had stabilised and expanded the Republic. He was also at the head of an army, so it's likely that the Senate felt compelled to grant him the third triumph, however much they feared his popularity. Pompey had no doubts about his rights to the triumph, as he saw his success on a par with that of Alexander the Great. The triumph was ten months in the planning and was the most lavish display of Roman success ever seen in the city. The huge wealth collected on campaign was on full display for the two long-day celebrations. Pompey had bought 15 nations and 900 cities under Roman rule, and he was going to be sure that no one forgot that. But he had a plan beyond the triumph itself. Such celebrations were too ephemeral for his liking. Rome needed a permanent reminder of his greatness. He settled on building a theatre. It was to be a theatre so grand that as the citizens came to enjoy the entertainments, they would be constantly reminded of his glory. Cicero said that he chose to make his lasting monument a theatre because it was a building that could carry his name. Forever, this beautiful building would be called the Theatre of Pompey. It's well known that Romans were great architects. Even the remains of what they built are impressive, be they something functional like an aqueduct or cistern, or something built with the aesthetics in mind, such as a temple or villa. They were both architectural visionaries and practical engineers who could make those designs a reality. So it's no surprise that Pompey could realise huge ambition and make the first permanent theatre an impressive effort. In terms of Roman theatres, it was never bettered for size and grandeur. In fact, the Greeks have to take some credit for this, as it was inspired by a theatre on Lesbos. The theatre is located near the capital Mytilene, and although an excavated ruin now, it was known to be one of the longest surviving and largest theatres in Greece in its time. Probably constructed about 300 BCE, it could accommodate an audience of up to 15,000 people. 
It was restored during the Roman period of occupation, and it was in 62 BCE that Pompey visited the island, and was said to be so impressed with the sight of the theatre, that when he got the chance, he ordered something similar to be built in Rome. He had to be clever, though. The laws preventing the construction of permanent theatres hadn't been revoked, so he could not openly build a theatre, but given his stature and popularity with the public, it's easy to see why no serious objections were sustained. He found a site to the south of the Campus Martius, the old military training ground that we know better as the Field of Mars. This was a floodplain of the Tiber, but by the 1st century BCE it had been drained and was the home for large public buildings, such as temples, baths and a gymnasium, and the most well-known and still-standing structure, the Parthenon. So this was an up-and-coming area of the city, but significantly was outside the Pomerium, the sacred boundary that divided the old city from the newer parts. Pompey, ever the shrewd politician, must have believed that situating a theatre here would ultimately be acceptable, but still he was a bit cautious in getting around the existing theatre-building laws. He turned to the Roman love of the celebration of military success to conceal his true purpose. He announced the building as a temple to Venus Victrix, making it a celebration of military success and included a permanent shrine at the top of the building. Venus Victorious was Pompey's personal god, so although his motive was an ulterior one, perhaps it's not a complete pretense that allowed him to have the structure built as a permanent addition to the city and in stone. As the building progressed, rows of semicircular benches were included and a low, deep stage was built so that everyone seated would have a good view. By now, there must have been some suspicions. If something looks like a temple from the outside, but like a theatre inside, then it's going to get used as a temple, right? Pompey's story was that the tiers of benches were in fact steps leading to the image of the goddess within the temple. It seems unlikely that anyone was really fooled by this, especially when they saw a small semicircle in front of the stage that looked an awful lot like an orchestra, and those doors at the back of the stage, well, it was just like being in a theatre. But he got away with it. And it wasn't just a theatre building, it was a cultural complex. There were four pre-existing temples that were incorporated into a sacred area, so the whole development was given a religious legitimacy. He also had an eye for the more earthly pleasures of the citizens. Adjacent to the theatre itself was a large garden area, decorated with statues and fountains and enclosed by columned porticos. Pompey had an extensive collection of art and artefacts collected on his military campaigns. These were put on display in adjacent rooms that were accessed through a covered arcade that run down the length of the garden. The fountains were said to be particularly lavish, but may only have run for a few hours a day. The water supply via the local aqueduct was probably not strong enough to supply the volume of water required at pressure, unless there was another as yet undiscovered supply to supplement it. On the other side of the garden were rooms set aside for political meetings and it became a facility often used by the Senate in subsequent years. Under and behind the stage was a crypt area, which was a typical feature of Roman buildings. It's thought that the area was used for stalls selling refreshments and as a cool area away from the sun and heat of the auditorium. The theatre had an element of natural cooling as a breeze would have blown through the open passages thanks to the cooling effect of the stone, but Rome is a very hot city at the height of summer and the auditorium when crowded was probably an uncomfortably warm place. 
As ever, describing the precise design is difficult thanks to lack of evidence, but it's likely that the design from the Templi theatres was followed, with a stage backdrop and a deep stage linked to the auditorium, with only a relatively small orchestra. You'll remember that in the Greek model, the stage and the auditorium were two distinct parts, separated by the large orchestra. So the Roman version, with its small orchestra and connected auditorium, had a very different feel to it. The ornamentations at the back of the stage and above in the gallery that ran around the auditorium and outside onto the face of the building were among the grandest, finest and most ornate ever seen in Rome. Money was clearly no object to Pompey. When the entertainment was finished, the audience, who could number up to 28,000, left the auditorium through arched tunnels. Perhaps I should say they were expelled through these tunnels. They're called vomitoria. It's difficult to overstate the grandeur of the theatre. Even in the post-Roman period, when the theatre was starting its decline, the Ostrogothic Chancellor Cassiodorus was so impressed that he described it as caves vaulted with hanging stones so cleverly joined with beautiful shapes that they resemble more the grottos of huge mountains than anything made by human hands. One would have thought it more likely for a mountain to subside than this stone building to be shaken. High praise indeed. The theatre was opened in either 55 BCE, according to Pliny, or 52 BCE, according to sources closer to Cicero. Two productions are associated with the opening, Clytonestra and Equos Troianus. Unfortunately, neither play survives, but we can guess at the themes from the familiar names in the titles. Clytonestra was written by Lucius Atticus, whom I mentioned briefly as a writer of tragedies in the introduction episodes. He's the one who lived a long time and had conversations with Cicero, but we know little else about him. Equos Troianus was by Livius Andronicus or Gnaeus Navius, both of whom you'll remember from those introductory episodes. A celebrated actor, Clodius Aesopus, was brought out of retirement to perform in the opening shows, which were accompanied by the inevitable gladiator contests and displays of exotic animals. And here's a great opportunity to tell you something about Clodius Aesopus, the most respected tragic actor of his day. His dates aren't known, other than he was retired by this time, and was known to Cicero personally. Indeed, we can go as far as to say he was a friend and pupil of Cicero, who taught him elocution. He was clearly an actor who immersed himself in a role completely. The Greek historian Plutarch reported that when playing Atreus in a scene where he's contemplating revenge on Thyestes, he got so carried away by the part that during a performance he lashed out with a stave or knife and killed another actor. Sadly, we don't know the details of any legal repercussions from that one or how he got out of them. Potential murder charges notwithstanding, he was often seen at the law courts for research purposes. He was said to study the character of both defendants and the prosecuting lawyers so that he could then better represent feelings more truthfully on stage. It sounds like method acting, centuries before the term was coined, but that doesn't mean that there was subtlety. Cicero uses the term summus artifex to describe him, meaning something like high priest of art, and comments that he was suited to playing the leading role in life as much as on the stage. I'm imagining one of those larger-than-life actors who always seems to be performing to the back of the stalls, on and off stage, whatever the circumstances. His return from retirement was not completely successful. Just as he commenced a big speech, his voice gave out and he was unable to continue. Cicero implies that the Roman audience would not normally be forgiving of such a failure, but on this occasion the old actor's distress was so obvious that nobody resented it. 
It seems that even in the ancient world, old actors couldn't resist the lure of that one last great performance. He died a wealthy man, leaving a fortune of 200,000 sesterces to his son, who set about to enjoy his acquired wealth as much as possible. Horace and Cicero both tell us how on one occasion he took a pearl earring from the daughter of a consul, dissolved it in vinegar and drank it just to have the satisfaction of consuming £8,000 in a single draught. Pompey's motivation for the huge undertaking of building the permanent theatre was undoubtedly a severe case of self-promotion. Building such an edifice in the name of the people and for their benefit boosted his prestige ahead of the Senate and the magistrates. And just to finish off Pompey's story, he spent the next decade in Italy, but significantly not much in Rome. He tried to develop allegiances in the peninsula so that all citizens would see him as the first citizen, but it was a misjudgment on his part not to keep up with the Roman nobles, who were rebuilding their power. He had never been a natural favourite of theirs, and for the first time he had a real rival for popular power. Julius Caesar had built a power base in Gaul and northern Italy, and when he returned from acting as governor of Spain, he formed the first triumvirate with Pompey and Crassus. This was not a formal position, but an election compact, and there were still plenty of political wrangles as they fought it out with other parties. When Caesar was elected consul in 59 BCE, and was then granted military command in Illyria and Gaul, he was able to secure large sections of the army that formally reported to Pompey. The pact became very strained, but was then reinforced when they met in 56 BCE. But Pompey found more and more constraints being put on him by political manoeuvres coming from Rome. The death of Crassus while he was in Mesopotamia was followed by a period where Rome descended into something close to anarchy, as political factions literally turned to violence, all of which was watched by Pompey from outside the city. Eventually, the violence got so bad that the Senate had no option but to call him in to restore order. He gathered his Italian army, subdued the city, and was appointed sole consul. With Caesar in Gaul, he used his consulship for much reform, some of which was aimed at diminishing Caesar's power. Caesar refused to disband his army and return from Gaul, and when an attempt in the Senate to declare Caesar a public enemy failed, Pompey was asked by a group of his senatorial supporters to take power. A state of war was declared in January 49 BCE, and four days later Caesar crossed the Rubicon with his army. Pompey's plan was always to abandon Italy and fight back from his power base in the east, but Caesar advanced very quickly and followed him across the Adriatic. Several battles ensued, with Caesar struggling away from his power base and easy supply for his army, and Pompey struggling to hold his alliances together. In a strategic move, he travelled to Egypt via Cyprus, hoping to get support from Ptolemy, who'd been his client king a few years earlier. It was a plan doomed to fail, as the Egyptians had decided that their only option in this game of chess was to assassinate Pompey. They sent a greeting party of assassins, and Pompey was stabbed as he stepped onto Egyptian soil. When Caesar caught up a few days later, he was said to be distraught with the outcome, and refused to look at Pompey's severed head. Whatever his true feelings, Pompey's death left the path open to power for Caesar. He was kept busy subduing the last of Pompey's supporters for a few years, but eventually he returned to Rome and took power as dictator for life. But to step back to happier times for Pompey, he could take in the glory of this theatre for many years. He may not have been in Rome that much, but the theatre of Pompey shone brightly for him and was the only permanent theatre in Rome for the next 40 years, 
and even once rival theatres were constructed, they were all built in the shadow of the original, quite literally in some cases. Eventually, several theatres were built in the same area, creating a theatre district in Rome. Newer theatres were of similar design, but none were so large or grand as Pompey's theatre, and it remained the preeminent theatre in Rome throughout its existence. Construction of the Theatre of Marcellus was begun by Julius Caesar, but his assassination came when only the foundations had been laid, and the building was completed under Augustus in 11 BCE. Several old buildings, including a circus, were demolished to make room for the new theatre, and a 400-year-old temple dedicated to Apollo was moved a few metres. A few columns and the podium from that temple can still be seen today. Augustus dedicated the theatre to his nephew Marcellus, who'd been his heir until his early death in 23 BCE. The theatre was over 100 metres in diameter, and the audience capacity was a not unimpressive 20,500 people. Seating was arranged in the typical semicircle, in this case supported by two tiers of 41 arches and stone columns. It's likely that there was a third upper level that held lighter wooden seating for obvious architectural reasons. The theatre was probably opened in 17 BCE, a few years before its formal dedication, with staging part of the secular games in that year. The staging of plays, poetry readings, musical competitions and other cultural events at the theatre are recorded, but the increasing popularity of circus games and the construction of larger venues like the Colosseum meant that the use of the building gradually declined. By the 4th century CE it was disused and in a state of disrepair. Stone was removed and used for other building projects and in medieval times what was left was used as a fortress. What remains, two tiers of twelve arches, was incorporated into a family palace in the early 18th century and can still be seen today as part of the Palazzo Orsini, which remains an important historical site in Rome. Some of the upper floors are now divided into apartments, but the surrounding areas are still used for small open-air concerts in the summer and the original arches are very obvious. By contrast, the Theatre of Balbus was a smaller affair with capacity for about 7,000 spectators. Lucius Cornelius Balbus was born in Cadiz and made his fortune serving under Pompey, but he somehow managed to remain on friendly terms and profitable terms with Caesar and later with Octavian, which must have been quite a tightrope to walk. He had been chief engineer for Caesar in Spain, so was obviously well placed to oversee the building of a theatre. After successful military service in modern-day Libya, he was honoured with a triumph in 19 BCE. It was the first time a triumph had been granted to a citizen who was not of Roman birth. Augustus ordered the spoils of war to be used in constructing the theatre and Balbus had it ready for dedication by the time August returned from Gaul in 13 BCE. Its most notable architectural feature was said to be four onyx columns. The theatre gets little mentioned by writers of the time and it's only relatively recently that its exact location has been confirmed. That came about when pieces of the former urbis, a large marble map of the city, were pieced together in the 1960s, revealing specific mention of the building as a theatre. Excavations began in the early 1980s and were completed in the crypt area over the next 20 years. A catalogue from the 4th century BCE records the theatre with a capacity of 11,500 persons and we can only assume that its demise followed the same path as the Theatre of Marcellus as we have no other details. 
As far as we can tell, these three examples established the pattern for all Roman theatres, and as theatre building expanded into the empire right through to the 2nd century CE, similar structures were built. Notable examples were at Pompeii, Herculaneum and Ostia on the Italian peninsula, Jeresh and Petra in Asia Minor, on the African coast, particularly in what's now Libya and in Spain and in France. Not to forget that existing Greek structures were repaired and augmented in the same period and put to use. The theatre of Pompeii soon became associated with some of the darker parts of Roman history. Caesar used the theatre as a venue for the triumph, celebrating his victory over Pompey's African legions, no doubt relishing the irony. He was to meet his own end there a few years later. The Senate was using the rooms bordering the garden at the time, so it was there that his murder was enacted. It's said that he died at the foot of a statue of Pompey. Augustus and then subsequent emperors maintained and repaired the theatre when necessary. At least one major fire is recorded on the site. Nero, perhaps the emperor that best loved the theatre, gilded the temple. By the 4th century CE, the structure is recorded as being able to hold 22,888 people. Even after the fall of Rome in 476 CE, the theatre continued to be used, not falling into disrepair until the mid-500s CE, when the Gothic War reduced the population of the city considerably and there was no requirement for such a large theatre. The theatre and the surrounding site were steadily looted for valuables and the marble reused in other buildings. In the later Middle Ages, new buildings began to be built over the site, and any remains, but parts of the buildings are still recognisable, having been incorporated into foundations of new buildings. In cellars in the area, the line of some arches can be seen, and some pillars used in local buildings are thought to have originated from the theatre. But I don't think that we should leave such a monumental theatre on thoughts of its eventual demise. Let's remember instead that these three buildings functioned and were enjoyed by many thousands of people over hundreds of years, be it for plays, pantomime, mime, singing, poetry, oratory, dancing, and yes, even those gladiators and the animal baiting. With only these three examples, and arguably the Colosseum itself, which was used for mixed entertainments, including theatre in the same way the permanent theatres and the Circus Maximus were, it's difficult to be certain that they are representative of all theatres built in Rome and the Roman territories. However, information about these three theatres is the best we have, and are all consistent in the related design of the semicircular cavia or auditorium connected to the Scania and Scania fronds, the stage and the backdrop with only a small orchestra circle in front. This design is the one to hold in your mind as we discuss the plays and how they were presented. The other thought to hold on to is the scale of the spectacle that was presented. Grand, ornate buildings from the outside, with lavish furnishings inside, were a huge part of the theatre-going experience, perhaps even arguably the point in themselves. The budgets involved in building the temporary theatres must have been very big, and those used for the permanent buildings were, well, eye-wateringly huge. Even when we get to the plays themselves, it's pretty clear that the money was spent on the venue and the stage decorations, and the play no longer held the central position that it did for the Greeks. The Roman tastes were undoubtedly influenced by the Hellenistic, but the very Roman trait of public displays of wealth and a love of entertaining spectacles were very much to the fore. The permanent theatre buildings in Rome and the Roman territories are tantalisingly only available to us in the form of partial ruins and there's not much documentary evidence about them. 
but we can, with a bit of speculation, get a picture of how they functioned and what setting they provided for the plays of the time. Evidence for their slightly earlier forebears, the temporary theatre building, is even more ephemeral, but they point a path back to the temporary stages that were the original setting of Roman theatre. To put a link back directly to Greek theatre from there is, I think, too tenuous. There clearly was some influence, but the Roman theatre was different. It didn't depend on using the natural landscape for its basic shape, but it used a similar one and built on the Greek understanding of acoustics. The materials used in construction were different, initially wood and then concrete, stone and wood for the structure, with marble, gold and other materials for ornamentation, which gave them a different sound, a different vision, and a very different ambience from the Greek idea of theatre. For the Romans, these were places primarily for entertainment, not religion, and although they extended their reach into cultural activities generally by the addition of garden areas and displays of art and artefacts, there was, I think, little expectation of any sort of cultural education. The thought in the forefront of the mind of the sponsors, designers and builders of the permanent theatres was to display their wealth and their power and to be seen to be showing their support for the well-being of the citizens of Rome by providing the venues for their entertainment. That was putting kudos in the bank of the people for current and future political ambitions. We'll come across many other examples of how theatre and entertainment has been used for political purposes over the years, and some examples are almost as lavish as the Roman version. Next time, I'm going to take a look at the staging of plays in the Roman theatre and see what details we can tease out about the performance conditions, the performers themselves, and the use of the paraphernalia for performance, costumes, props, masks and other essentials. In the meantime, if you'd like some more theatre history, please visit us on patreon.com, where there are now three bonus episodes, the most recent of which looks at translations and how they can be very different from each other, using a passage from Aeschylus as an example. You can get access to all bonus episodes and transcripts for the main podcast as soon as you sign up there. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp.